I don't know about you, I can't handle anything scary. I've never been able to, um, specifically scary movies. Um, I am not just talking about like horror movies, those are an absolutely never, um, but also thriller movies, um, anything with scary bad guys, which is pretty much every movie, but it's true, and this has been my whole life. Um, when I was a kid, there was this movie called Scamper, which, aww, they're so cute! This movie is terrifying, okay? <laughs> there are these poachers in this movie who are trying to shoot these penguins, and I was terrified as, see, you get it, terrified as a kid. Um, there's also this unsuspecting gem, VeggieTales, anybody? <laughs> in this movie, uh, the creepy Nebuchadnezzar sings this really weird musical number about worshiping a chocolate bunny, and I literally got nightmares for weeks. <laughs> and even as I've gotten older, I've been known to go to great lengths to avoid watching anything scary, including reading entire plot summaries of movies before I watch them. Fast-forwarding through key plot moments in a movie I've never seen before because the movie, the music is getting creepy and I can't handle it. Or watching a movie behind the couch with my thumbs in my ears and the rest of my fingers in front of my face like this. Like at this point, am I actually watching that movie? That's what happens when you mix fear with FOMO. In all honesty though, I avoid scary movies not because of what happens during the movie, but what happens to me afterward, right? I'm not gonna be able to sleep. I'll probably get nightmares. Um, before I attempt to sleep, I will probably check my closet to make sure that that vampire is not in there. And I'll probably check that bolt lock 1,500 times just to make sure that that CIA double agent isn't gonna come in and get me, as if that bolt lock is going to stop him, <laughs> right? But that's the thing about fear. When we experience fear, we can easily forget what we know to be true and become delusional about our reality. In today's passage, we get a glimpse of the disciples in a moment of fearful delusion, and we also get to see how Jesus meets them in it. This story brings up specific moments in my life for me where I lost sight of the truth because of the storms that were raging around me. And I wonder if it will for you too. Everyone responds differently to the fear and the chaos of the world, but the question is, how is Jesus inviting us to respond? Every week throughout this sermon series, we've gotten to witness the way that Jesus is teaching his disciples how to live like him. At Mill City, we often talk about discipleship like a square. This is an adaptation of Blanchard's situational leadership model, and it shows how to effectively teach and disciple someone towards greater leadership. So it starts with the leader doing and the disciple watching, and then the leader doing and the disciple helping, and then the disciple doing and the leader helping, and then the disciple doing while the leader watches, and then they sort of become the leader. <clears throat> Notice that it slowly transfers the action and the responsibility from the leader to the disciple until they become the leader. Jesus has been leading his disciples around this square to prepare them for what's to come. And the disciples have seen Jesus do pretty incredible things up until this point. He's cast out demons, he's healed the sick, he's preached God's forgiveness, and he's calmed a storm. And the disciples have also begun to participate in those miracles. A couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus commission the disciples to go out to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to preach God's forgiveness. Also, last week, 
We saw the way that Jesus brought the disciples into the act of feeding 5,000 people by stepping forward in obedience and placing their trust in Jesus. The disciples got to participate in an incredible miracle of provision. They saw Jesus do the impossible once again, and they got to be a part of it. Our passage today happens immediately after that. So we're going to pick up in the story of Mark 6, verses 45 through 52. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. Mark 6, 45 through 52. It says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Now this passage begins with Jesus making his disciples get into the boat. And the verb for made in this passage is actually closer to forced in the Greek, which is an abnormally strong verb to use in this context. Jesus is forcing the disciples out. Now, like this meme suggests, some might imagine that Jesus is like a parent, just forcing the kids to go to the room so he can get one minute of alone time. <clears throat> that tracks, right? But actually, the scholarship around this passage suggests a possible different motivation. Earlier in this chapter, there are multiple references to the wilderness, and some scholars suggest that Jesus is actually sending the disciples out on the lake in order for them to have their own wilderness experience the way that Jesus did in the first chapter of Mark. This moment may be an intentional test of discipleship for the disciples. Jesus is giving them space to practice what they learned. Something you should know about the significance of water in this context is that the lakes and the seas represented for the disciples and most cultures at the time horror and chaos. The sea was the dwelling place of all evil. So a stormy sea was the kind of thing that would make a person question everything. It was the kind of thing that would keep you checking those boat locks after you checked them two minutes ago. And it seems like Jesus just sends them out into that mess and walks away up the mountain, leaving the disciples straining at the oars and failing to make any progress. Can you imagine how that might have felt for the disciples? To have Jesus force them into chaos and seemingly abandon them? Can you imagine how alone they felt? That actually doesn't require a whole lot of imagination for me, and I suspect it might not for you either. About six years ago, I was in one of the darkest seasons of my life. I was walking very close with a dear friend who was going through a significant mental health crisis, and none of my attempts to get them help were working. I was exhausted and at the end of myself. I was straining at the oars of my life and going absolutely nowhere. When that storm was at its worst point, I was scheduled to chaperone a winter youth retreat for my church. So with as much sunny youth leader energy as I could muster, I headed north to the retreat location, a giant lake house on the top of a sand dune on the shores of Lake Michigan. As we pulled up to the house, we were all amazed. The sun lit up the snow-covered beach, creating this breathtaking scene. But it was December, so it's bitterly cold on the shore, and the white-capped waves were beating the shoreline in an unending angry chorus, and interrupting this beautiful landscape were giant orange traffic cones along the shoreline. Apparently, the cones were there to indicate where we should no longer walk, 
because the water had been slowly eroding that shoreline, and if you stepped too close to the shore, you might fall directly into the raging waters. And man, if I didn't feel that on a personal level that weekend. My life, at that moment, was that shoreline, and I was just trying my absolute best to keep it all together, while little by little, I was being worn down by the wind and the waves in my life, and any minute now, I would just fall off the edge. Maybe you're there too. Maybe you're there right now sitting in this room, or maybe someone you love is there right now, straining at the oars, feeling totally abandoned by Jesus. Because the fact that storms will come is a guarantee. It will happen. It does happen. Out of the blue, your best friend in the whole world will tell you she doesn't want to be your friend anymore. And that actually hurts worse than any relationship breakup you've ever known. Your adult child just keeps making harmful choices, and you are at the end of yourself to know how to help them or what to do, and every choice feels like a bad one. Or you step out in faith to do that thing that God called you to do. You make that move or you take that promotion. And now every door is being slammed in your face and everything feels impossible. And now you wonder if you even heard God at all. The list could go on and on. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of us, if not all of us, know what it feels like for the disciples in this passage to be straining at the oars of life and making absolutely no headway. So how does Jesus respond? Well, certainly not the way that they would have hoped, at least not initially. The passage, the the, whoop, the passage says <laughs> that Jesus saw the disciples struggling later that night. He sees them from the mountain. And then the passage says that he waits until dawn to go out to them. Jesus is taking his sweet time. Why? Because Jesus' goal is not to make them comfortable. Jesus' goal is to disciple them in his way. The disciples have a task in front of them. And Jesus didn't just send them out there on a whim. He's been preparing them for this moment. In fact, he's already shown them what to do. Remember the list? Two chapters before this in Mark, we read about Jesus calming a stormy sea. Jesus and the disciples are in a boat. There's a big storm. The disciples are scared. Jesus is taking a nap. The disciples wake up Jesus and are like, don't you care if we drowned? And Jesus sits up, looks at the sea and goes, be quiet. And the sea calms and everything is fine. And that passage says, the disciples were amazed. Since then, Jesus has been showing the disciples how to live into that same authority that he has from God. They've begun doing all the things Jesus has done. They've killed sick people, they've cast out demons, they've preached God's forgiveness. And that very same day of this storm that we're talking about today, they fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. And I know that that's like normal for us because we're used to hearing that story, most of us, but that's pretty incredible. Okay, and they just experienced this. So Jesus is walking them around the discipleship square, and it's the disciples' turn to practice what they've been taught. And that is all well and good until you're the people about to die in a boat that's filling with water. <clears throat> the disciples have been at this for hours at this point, and they are experiencing fearful delusions. All miraculous activity from that afternoon and their entire journey with Jesus has been forgotten as they just fight to stay alive. They're imagining their end. They see no way out of this storm. And we see a pretty clear breakdown of their belief system and what comes next. So Jesus finally goes down to the lake and begins to walk on the water, which, to be fair, they've never seen that before, so the disciples are going to be shocked. I mean, I don't know if I would place that any greater than feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, but that's still pretty incredible. So they see Jesus walking on water, and then they just say, Jesus, glad you're here. Everything's going to be okay. No, no, that's not what they say. They say, ghost! It's a ghost! Right? The wild thing about this is that ghosts are not at all a part of the Jewish tradition. Ghosts are a part of a Greek tradition, 
But the, the disciples' Jewish faith system actually doesn't include belief in ghosts at all. Again, fear makes us lose sight of what is true. This is why when we get a stomachache in, in the middle of the night, we begin to barter with a god of Pepto-Bismol, just staring at the bottle like, God, if you'll just heal this stomachache, I'll never eat fried chicken again. Not only is that not true because we love fried chicken, but also that's ridiculous. That's not a part of our theology at all. We know that that's not how God works. In the middle of this terrifying situation, the disciples just forgot everything they knew to be true. The disciples forgot in the dark what they knew in the light. And if we're honest, it's easy for us to also forget what God has done for us when we're in the darkness. Six years ago, at that lake house on Lake Michigan, I forgot too. At one point that weekend, I was hiding out in one of the many beautiful bedrooms next to a fireplace, snuggled up with a warm blanket, looking out on that traffic cone-laden shoreline, finally allowing some tears to fall, to let myself feel the weight of everything that was happening in my life. When God suddenly brought my mind back to another very similar moment six years prior to that, when I was walking alongside another friend who was struggling, who didn't want to fight anymore. And the reality was that I had resigned myself to it because after over a year of turmoil, I just didn't think there was any hope of rescue. But God had performed a miracle then. My friend had come out of that dark season, he'd found his God-given purpose, and he never looked back. And that day at the lake house, looking at that turmoil in front of me, I just heard God say, see those waves? They aren't new. We've been here before. And just as I was with you then, I am with you now. I didn't hear God say everything was going to turn out the way that I wanted it to, or that the same thing that had happened before would happen again. But God had never failed to be with me in the midst of the storms of my life, and God was not going to leave me then either. Remembering where I had been with God, remembering the miracles that God had already done in my life, anchored me in that storm. Because the truth is the storms and the chaos are going to come. And we have to work to remember in the dark what we knew in the light. We have to work to remember that we serve a God who walks on the chaos of this world. Now, if we take another look at this passage, we notice it does not say Jesus goes out directly to them. It actually says Jesus was about to pass by them, which seems a little rude. But if we look closer, we see that Jesus is actually helping them remember who he is. Some scholars have concluded that this line about passing by is alluding during the disciples' own wilderness experience to God passing by Moses on Mount Sinai when the Israelites are in the wilderness. What is even more mind-blowing is that when Jesus finally speaks to the disciples, he says, it is I. And that phrase is a direct reference to the personal Hebrew name for the God of Israel. And those two things combined in this passage likely show how Jesus is trying to aid the disciples in remembering God in the midst of this storm. When I was a teenager, as a part of our Christian school curriculum, I had to memorize the entire book of John in 15 verse segments. And my parents had to sign off each time I recited a section from memory. And I promise you, it was as excruciating for them as it was for me. <laughs> my mom in particular. So when I'd get stuck in the middle of reciting this passage that she's already tried to listen to multiple times, she would just do her best to trigger my memory by doing some sort of biblical charades. She'd be like, king, cross right? Just all the things. She'd just subtly act out different words in hopes that I could continue so she didn't have to keep listening to me recite the same passage, but also so that I, was, I would learn what I was meant to learn. 
So maybe Jesus was thinking, if I just pass in front of them, if I just get into their line of vision, they'll remember what they should be doing. I'll just walk past and just be like, it's me. It's me. <laughs> Unfortunately for Jesus, like teenage Rose, the disciples are not very good at charades. So eventually, Jesus turns and goes toward the boat and announces himself. He's like, calm down, y'all. It's just me. And you can hear Peter like, oh, man, of course the correct answer is Jesus. But at this point, Jesus just gets in the boat and calms the storm. And how do the disciples respond this time to a calm storm? It says the disciples were amazed. Again. This is the exact same response as the last time Jesus calmed the storm. It's like the disciples had never seen it before. Now, after the storm is calmed, we read that the disciples had not understood about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. And if we aren't careful, we can get a little judgy of the disciples right about now. Like, are you kidding me? How many miracles do you guys need to see? Right? But I cannot tell you how many times in my life I've forgotten about that day at the lake house. Like the disciples, I tend to think my current situation is just different than the last one. But this storm is bigger, Jesus, but you aren't in the boat with me, Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus is always in the boat with us. He's always in the boat. And again and again, I've had to go back to that moment looking out at those waves, and I've had to take stock of what God has done in my life. But we don't like this because we want discipleship to be neat and tidy. Just do the square. It's just A to B to C to D. Ding, fully discipled. But we know that's not how it works. We know this. If you have kids, if you love kids, if you've interacted with one kid one time, you know this is not how we teach kids how to do things, right? <laughs> Dishes, for example, you show a kid how to put a dish in the sink. Then they walk with you and you let them put the dish in the sink. Then you're going to watch as they put the dish in the sink, except they just stare at you like they've never seen a dish or a sink in their entire lives. And then you do that same thing a billion times until they turn 18, right? This is how it works. <laughs> and I think that's actually a good image for hard-heartedness, just the blank stare of someone who should know something but absolutely just does not know it. That was the disciples in this passage, and that's us in our own walks with God. Because it turns out we're not robots who work from point A to point B to point C. We're humans, and we expect the way of Jesus to look like this, the square, when in reality, the way of Jesus looks like this. <laughs> we take a right on the square, and then a left, and then three rights, and then a left, and then another right, and we might get stuck at a few dead ends for a while. But the miracle upon miracles is that as long as we're doing our best to walk in the way of Jesus, to be gentle with ourselves when we take a wrong turn, to remember where we've been, and to take the next best turn, the journey will always end with us safe with Jesus. Someone sent me a TikTok video a couple weeks ago of this guy going through a haunted house. There were dozens of actors who had been transformed into zombies and vampires and horror movie antagonists. You know, the type of situation you could not catch me in. Never. But this guy decided that in order to help himself get through this haunted house, he was just going to sing Disney songs at the top of his lungs. <laughs> Has anyone else seen this? It is absolutely hilarious. The actors do not know what to do with him. Some still attempt to scare him, but then they crack up halfway through. Some of them are very frustrated that he's ruining this illusion for everybody. And some of them just start singing with him as if they've completely forgotten their jobs, right? <laughs> The Disney songs reminded that guy and everyone else around him of the truth. That haunted house was not the full picture of his reality. It doesn't make the haunted house any less real. He was walking through a real place. But his reality was not going to be defined by fear, but instead by what he knew to be true. 
That is what remembering God does for us in moments of intense fear. It helps us to anchor ourselves in the bigger truth that our good and loving God is with us, is in control, and is making all things right. We do not ignore the realities around us, but we courageously hold on to the truth in the midst of life's very real storms. As we face storms in our lives, or we prepare ourselves for the storms to come, we must remember where we've been. And today I want us to individually spend a little time thinking about this in our own lives. Where have you seen God work? What moments can you point to that will anchor you to Jesus during life's storms? Maybe it's moments of healing, moments where God used others to support you, moments where you experience God's forgiveness or freedom from shame. Maybe it's a moment when you <clears throat> experience God's glory and majesty in nature or experience a reconciliation you thought was impossible. In some seasons when personal examples are hard to grasp, I've anchored myself in remembering what God has done for others in my life or by remembering what God has done for his people in God's big story using specific Bible passages. The band's going to come up and we're just going to take a few minutes to pause and reflect on these questions. If you're moved to do so, you can write down your answers, either in a notebook or on your smartphone, but do something today to mark this moment and anchor yourself by remembering God. Because we walk, when we walk the way of Jesus, the storms are going to come. But when we choose to remember who God is, it anchors us to the truth amidst our fear.